0: Welcome to Bible Foundations, where we study through books of the Bible. We've been looking at the book of James, and today we're looking at James chapter 2. But before we jump in, really at verse 1, I want to make sure that we do a little bit of a review in chapter 1 itself. Because we looked at things like this. Who wrote the book of James, which was James, the half-brother of Jesus? Who did he write it to? Well, we know that he wrote it to primarily Jewish people, and they were in the midst of all kinds of struggles and difficulties, which makes a lot of sense. And the purpose of the book was a couple different things. Well, chapter one, he says there's a purpose and a posture for the suffering that those believers were going through. And so he says things like, consider it all joy, and he tells them that their suffering is going to help them actually mature in Jesus Christ. Now, you'd want to know that if you were going through suffering, and so he actually tells them those kinds of things. He goes on to say that the character of God is always true and trustworthy, and he speaks about how suffering can cause us to forget that God is good, that God is a Father, and that God is always at work. And then he lands in this place where he talks about hearing and obeying God's Word. So in suffering, we tend to get off track, and he calls the believers to not just hear the Word of God, but heed the Word of God. We've got to know it, but we also have to show it. Now, you like that rhyme. i got a couple more coming at you today. But it's really important that when we think about what James is going after, he, he wants to set up the context of suffering. Number one, suffering's going to happen. But number two, there's a certain posture that you have to have, and you can expect godly results as you walk through it in the nature of Christ. And so we've got to heed the word of God. And so we transition now into chapter two, and these things are going to be important because you're going to see how it flows right into the subject matter Of what he's dealing with and discussing with these believers. There's two things primarily that we're going to discuss. So you can kind of break up chapter two into two sections. And the first is the sin of favoritism. Now, other translations, or you might have subheadings in your Bible, they call it uh, different things, but we'll call it the sin of favoritism. And the second half of chapter two is real faith equals real works. Now, remember, in chapter one, where he talks about hearing and heating don't just hear only. It's kind of the same concept, but he actually starts to go a little farther in that. So let's go ahead and start to read uh, chapter one or chapter two in verse one. And I'm going to actually read all the way to verse 13. We'll stop and then we'll go to the second section after we're done commenting on it. But here's what it says in verse one. He said, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man with dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, hey, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? It's a rhetorical question. He, He means them to agree. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well." But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, you do not commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, there's a lot going on here that we want to comment on, and I'll be honest with you, I think right up front, this is not a passage of scripture that you hear taught a whole lot, especially when it comes to like pick and choose your favorite passage to preach from. And so when it comes to like sermon series, the only time you're gonna hear this brought up is if you're going through a Bible study on the book of James, or if somebody's preaching a sermon series and they're going verse by verse. But this is just not something that we typically focus on. And I would argue that we should because there's something here that's very relevant for the things that we face today and what we ourselves are tempted by. But James essentially is saying this to these believers. Again, we've got to contextualize it by thinking about people, real people that he is talking to who are struggling with this. James probably heard this is what's happening and so he's addressing it. It's not random, it's not a general principle, it's something specific. He says, stop showing favoritism. And there's two simple reasons. Uh, Number one is they are discriminating against the poor and they are honoring the rich. And secondarily, this kind of behavior does not match the kind of faith that they present, profess in following the way of Jesus Christ. Now, the discrimination reveals an underlying prejudice, sort of a motive that they have that James is ascribing to them. They want something from the rich, and they don't mind putting down the poor in order to do it. But I was sort of thinking about what is the difference between prejudice And discrimination. What does it mean to be prejudiced and what does it mean to discriminate? Because even if those words aren't being used here, it is actually underneath favoritism itself. So let me go ahead and define prejudice. To be prejudiced means that you have an unfair or often unfounded feeling of dislike for a person or even a people group, usually based on certain factors. Now, in this particular context, it's the poor. But to discriminate means that you mistreat someone unjustly or unfairly based on that prejudice. So prejudice and discrimination work together. They're connected. You're not going to be prejudiced and not show discrimination. It's actually how it works. One underlies the other. So to discriminate obviously means that it's something that is actively shown in what you're doing. Prejudice is something that is in your attitude. It's your disposition, but discrimination is going to be seen in your actions. And James is calling out all of the above. So in verse two, we go back here. And I just want to make sure that we focus in here. He says, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man with dirty clothes, and you pay pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? He's saying, have you not discriminated Against the poor. He's trying to get them to conclude for themselves that they've done something that is wrong. They've broken the law. They're not following the ways of Jesus. So James gives this very, very clear example that they're looking at the rich and giving them special treatment. That is discrimination. In other words, it's sin. In verses 5 to 7, he goes on and says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor, the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name with which you have been called? So there's a couple things happening here. First, he's saying, don't you remember that God chose the poor And they all know the history of Jesus, who actually was poor, and Jesus chose mostly people that were also poor as well. Very few had money that he was choosing in those days, and James reminds them of that. Guys, remember, it it is the poor that God chose through Jesus Christ to be apostles, to be advocates of the kingdom, carriers of the gospel. And Jesus himself came from a poor family, his disciples. All of those that were around him, or most of those that were around him and faithful to him in those days were of the poor. And so he wanted wanted to make sure that you don't want to discriminate on the very people that God might be calling you to equip and use for the work of the ministry. They may be the most faithful ministers to God, and do not overlook them because you think that the rich are going to give something to you. So he first talks about how God chose the poor, but then he says, isn't it the rich— that oppress you in verses six and seven? The word oppress here is a very strong word in their culture and it means to deprive somebody of their rights. Now think about that. He's saying, is it not the rich people that are literally the ones condemning you, dragging you into court? oppressing you, depriving you of your rights. So why is it that you think you're going to get something from them? And this is the seduction of a culture or a cultural thinking. It's where status and pride and pomp and circumstance sort of draws people into this thinking that if I get close to that person, or if I show that person favoritism, or if I'm friends with them, if I show them favor, they're going to show me favor. If I scratch their back, they're going to scratch my back. And James. James is calling them out on this and saying, don't you know that when you do these kinds of things, you're doing them primarily for people that do the exact opposite of what you're hoping for? He's actually calling them to a place of truth and recognizing that they too have a wicked motive. They're going to take the favor that you're giving them, and they're going to use it for their own selfish means, and they've proved it. Now, this doesn't mean that having money is wrong and it doesn't mean being wealthy is evil, but Jesus would say things like, it's almost impossible for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. It's like a a camel going through the eye of a needle. Jesus didn't say it Is impossible, but it's almost impossible, which means people that have so much material possessions, money, security. It's those kinds of people that, when they have those things, they don't think they need God. It's the people who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there is a seduction, there is a temptation where we draw our attention away from the people that God wants us to focus on and treat with fairness and equality, and we give favor to those, and it ends up usually, James is saying, not working out for us. And they live a superficial Christianity, and James actually calls them out on this, and he says it here in verse 7. He says, "'Do not these rich people blaspheme the fair name with which you have been called?' I'm not sure if you've ever thought about what he means, but it's sort of similar to when like singers or uh, baseball, basketball players who say they're a God believer or a Christian follower of some kind don't live like it at all. But let's say like the person that gets the music award and they wrote a terrible song that glorifies the sin that Jesus paid for. And then they get up to receive their reward and say, hey, I just want to thank God friend that is blasphemy in the name of Jesus you can't thank god for doing something that doesn't look anything like him you understand you did that yourself and so james is actually calling this type of behavior out and he's saying that there are rich people who are using and misusing the name of jesus and that's a form of blasphemy and james wants to open the eyes of the reader to actually remember that But he goes on from there in verse 8, and this is what it says. He said, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all of it. And he concludes by saying, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. Now, he puts this into a conversation that fits inside of the Torah, where when he says, love your neighbor, um, this, is, this is the royal law. The law is the, the law of the king. That's what he's talking about when he says this is the royal law. Leviticus 19, 18, which really is just love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 9 and 10, James points out that you can follow all these other laws, but not love your neighbor. And when you do that, you break the whole law. So he's really calling out their version of spirituality, like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. Like I'm adhering to this and I'm following that. And I love Jesus in this way. And And I'm following the the words of the Torah in that way. But he's saying Leviticus 19, 18, and Jesus reiterates that being love your neighbor as yourself, which all of the the law and and prophets can hang on loving God and loving neighbor. He's saying, if you're not going to do that, you're breaking all of it. You you, you shouldn't feel good about your spirituality if that's really where you are. And in verse 12, James uh, James exhorts the reader um, to speak and act, knowing that one day they're going to be judged. Look what he says so speak and so act as those who are being judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, this brings up a very important fact of the Christian life, and that is this we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our deeds are gonna be judged as Christians. Friends, if you don't believe this, if you think everything is grace, salvation is by, is by the grace of God. It's through faith, which is a gift of God as well. So we're not saved by our works, we're not saved by what we do, we're saved by what we believe and we're saved by what Jesus did. That's a fact, but we all are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we did in the body. If you don't believe me, listen to what Paul said. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, he said, for we must all appear, he's talking to Christians, before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This means that we are going to give an account. In the next chapter in James 3, he actually says that I would have it that not many of you were teachers for you receive a stricter judgment. Peter talks about judgment begins at the house of of God. Friends, there are two kinds of judgment. There is judgment that determines whether you are saved or not saved. You're either under the blood of Jesus or you're not. You're either partaking of the new covenant or you're not. But for those that are already under the blood of Jesus, we are going to give an account for our deeds. And James is reminding them hey, you might be a Christian. You might think you're doing okay. You might have received the grace of God. You may know that Jesus paid for your sin, but you are not living in a way that is keeping with what you know to be true about Jesus, and you want to do that. So, remember that you're going to stand before Jesus and give an account for the way you acted and the things that you said. And so, to sum this whole section up, three things. Number one, the law clearly instructs God's people to love and be mindful of and care for all people at all levels with essential equality. Discrimination is a sin, and it starts with prejudice. We want to rid ourselves of prejudice. We want to ensure we're not discriminating because we want to see all people made in the image of God, no matter who they are or what the status is in their life. Number two, Jesus taught in Matthew 18.33 and other places that we are to show mercy as a response of being shown mercy. And where that doesn't happen, Jesus gives us very, very, serious warnings and this is a vital piece of information and truth that we have to understand and thirdly James literally reiterates the law and the heart of Jesus as we consider others this is truly about serving God and following his word word rather than our own human agenda because friends we do have human agendas James here is calling them out on that agenda and it's vital that we grab a hold of these truths and these principles ourselves. Very, very important. And now we want to look at this second section, which I'm calling real faith equals real works. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 26 as we begin to sum up the second chapter of James. But let me read it to you first. It says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and no one says to them, and, and one says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Amen. <laughs> Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well, but the demons also believe that and shudder. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is, is useless. Excuse me. Are you willing to recognize, is what he's saying. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless or dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God." You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Real faith equals real works. Now, you may not know this, but interestingly enough, the great reformer Martin Luther said about this scripture that he thought it was inconsistent with the with the doctrine of justification and he thought that Paul and James were at odds because he primarily held to a Pauline theology uh, which means that he thought Paul was saying this and James was saying that. But I think when you study this and you look at it closely, you don't see what Martin Luther was talking about at all. And we just want to dive in. So for example, in verses 14 to 17, as we sort of chop this up, we see that James presents a proposition with a question. And it's not much different from the way that Jesus phrases his story about forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18. And it basically goes like this. A person that has truly received forgiveness, grace, and mercy will show and share what they have been given with others who need this practically as well. So in other words, to not share what you have received is an honest reflection of not receiving what you think you have. So Jesus would say something like this, if you do not forgive, you are not forgiven. But the principle is not that you give forgiveness to get forgiveness. It's actually a a wordplay. What he's really saying, and Jesus does this about five times in different ways, in the Lord's Prayer and a couple, other, uh, a couple other places, Matthew 18 being the primary example, it's not that you give forgiveness to get forgiveness. It's not that you give mercy to get mercy. It's that if you're not a giver of forgiveness, you're probably not forgiven because forgiven people forgive people. People that have received mercy give mercy. Now, they don't do it perfectly, but they do actually do it. And if a person is not going to show and share what they've received for free, then it is an indication that their heart was not changed by it. And when you receive something from God, it's not the same as receiving something from a person. And you have to remember that when God gives something, he gives it to your heart, not just to your hands. So that changes your heart. And if it doesn't change your heart, if it doesn't penetrate your heart, he's not just giving it to us because we're special all by ourselves. He's giving it to us because he loves us just like he loves everyone else. And when we come into that revelation of being reconciled with God, our Heavenly Father, there is automatically a river that wants to flow through our life and be reconciled with our brothers and sisters. And when we do not allow that river to flow, it is indicative of either not having truly received that grace and mercy and love, or that there is something about our heart being hardened, and this we need to heed a very serious warning. It's an evaluation of a person's true condition before God. And I want to ask the question, and we need to ask the question, can a person receive the grace and mercy of Jesus and not have any of that same fruit flowing through their life? If a person does not show that fruit in their life, it is evident that they're probably not born again. Now, let me just be honest with you. I have been a Christian for 22 to 23 years. I've been a pastor for 20 years, almost all of that time. And what's amazing to me is that I see a lot of people that call themselves Christians. I've met plenty of people that show initial fruit of salvation. But as you watch their life, nobody is perfect, but you find that the very thing that they profess to is in name only. And there is very little substance. And Jesus would say very practical things like, you know a tree by its fruit. I mean, that is just not difficult to understand. That if there's no fruit on a tree, if there's no apples on an apple tree, you don't even know that it's an apple tree. If there's no cherries on a cherry tree, how do you even know that it's a cherry tree? It's just a bush. And that's what James is talking about. He's not saying that you've got to give to get. That's obviously not the truth. That's not the case. But he is saying to believers that if you're not giving what you've received, he's he's calling them into question as to whether or not they are what they say that they are. And maybe that's offensive. Maybe Martin Luther was offended by that. Maybe we're offended by that and we say, that doesn't seem right. I thought it's all about grace. It is about grace, but if you truly receive grace, then the admonition is to give the grace that you have because Jesus has given us more than we need. It's enough to share. And so James, he makes, uh, he has no problem saying exactly what he thinks. Now, the Pharisees and many other religious groups. Uh, since then, have presented a doctrine of earning and deserving, which lends towards a sort of religious structure that qualifies people rather than points to Christ. But it's important for us to recognize that we're not looking at the Pharisees, or any other religious group in saying they had it right because they believed that you needed to earn it like some of the cults of today or some of the, I'm not necessarily paralleling Pharisees and cults, but I'm just saying sort of a religious structure that you've got to earn your way before God and you've got to do this to prove. No, it's actually quite the opposite. And what, what the religious call works, the followers of Jesus call worship works do not save you, but works are a revelation that you are saved. Works are not something that you do to prove anything to God, but works are proof that you have something from God. And this is what so many miss when they read these words. They don't think about the serious condition that maybe the readers are in that James is addressing. James is talking to religious people who are saying one thing and doing another. And so he's calling them into question. And I think rightfully so. And so we just sort of jump into his context in that frame of mind and we think, man, this must've been pretty bad. And we wanna ensure that we're not on the other end or the receiving end of that as extreme as it needed to be said, but rather maybe in a bite-sized chunk that we can evaluate our own hearts and our own condition before God and ensure that we're giving away what God has given to us. Freely we have received, freely we shall give. In verse 16, James uses a phrase that speaks to the mindset of a dismissive person who would say, hey, go in peace and be warmed and be filled. So people were actually doing this. He kind of quotes it. People were in need all around their context in their city, in their area. James had heard about this. And so he's using this phrase. He's saying, some of you are saying to people like, go and, and be warm and, and be filled. And it conveys this avoidance where people are actually willing to look needs in the eyes, like real people with real needs, and say to them, there, there, go and be filled and 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 go and be warm and give nothing to them. How does a person get to a place where they can look people in the eyes, know they have real needs for them and their family, do nothing about it, but give this patronizing word by saying, they're there, I hope everything works out for you. I hope that even though you don't have a coat and even though you don't have heat and even though you don't have a roof over your head, I hope that you have a great night's sleep. I mean, it just... It's ridiculous. And that's actually what James is trying to provoke in his readers. And we should feel the same way. It's not a light thing that he's saying. It's very serious. And so he's saying to them this, this very thing. You're ignoring people that are in need. That's what he's saying. You're ignoring people in need. So he starts with the sin of favoritism. The poor and the rich come into your gathering. You favor the rich. You, you ignore and patronize the poor. And this is a sin. And then he goes on to say, and this is sort of what it looks like. And by the way, I want you to know that if you say that you have faith, but you do not, do not have works, it's useless and it's dead. You do not have what you say you have, and it is not what you think that it is. And so as we sum up verses 18 through 26, let me just focus on a three, uh, two things. First is this. James addresses the fact that some think they have internal faith without external action. If your faith does not have any practicality, it doesn't have any real spirituality. Mere profession of faith means nothing, and he gives the demons belief uh, as proof of this. He says the demons believe this and shudder. You can believe and know the truth without righteously doing anything about it, and that should be scary. That's what he's saying. And number two, James gives two examples of Old Testament characters to show that their faith is not is now known by what they not, not by what they thought or by the, what by they said, but by what they did. He gives Abraham, it was reckoned unto him righteousness, what he did. He had faith, but it wasn't just sort of like a psychological certainty. His faith was seen by what he did, not by just what he said or by what he thought. It wasn't just an internal thing. It wasn't a psychologically certain comment that came out of his mouth. And that's why the faith movement which I'm gonna talk about on my other podcast is so dangerous because they'll use positive confession and they think it's psychological certainty. Faith is not merely what you just say with your mouth, it's what you do with your life. There are a lot of people that have faith and they're holding on to God for all of their life. But they may not say the right thing all the time. They might say real things. They might state for the record how they really feel, but they are holding on to God. They're pressing and they're praying. They're giving, they're serving. They're doing what they can. And that is real faith because real faith is seen. And that's the difference is today we've got that mixed up. Today we have a whole movement called the faith movement that believes that you need psychological certainty and positive confession to sort of prove, when in reality, there's so many people that have those things that have zero substance in their life of what real faith truly is as defined by Scripture. And that's why I'm saying the faith movement is dangerous in belief and practice. Please do look at conversations with Ben Dixon to hear more about that. But faith and action go together, and any other idea needed to be corrected because apparently, uh, needs to be corrected because apparently there was an apathy or avoidance of real ministry to real people. And yet, those were people who claimed to know a real God. And in fact, James is t- telling them, you do not know the real God the way that you really should, because real faith has real works. We're not saved by works, but works for the follower of Jesus is worship to Jesus. It's not what we're saved by, but it's what flows out of our life because we're saved. And this is such a vital, vital truth for all of us as followers of Jesus. We want to take heed because we can be seduced, we can be tempted, we can be led astray. We don't want that. And so we receive what James has to say to us today. And I pray that this challenges us, but more importantly, I pray that it changes us. That's what we want. We want God to do work in our hearts. We want our hearts to be pure. We want to fall in love with Jesus, and live in line with Jesus. This is because as followers of Jesus, all we want is him. We want him to be known. We want him to be shown in our life. And I pray that's what happens as a result of us studying James chapter two together. Now, if you don't feel hit between the eyes, you should, but stay tuned because we're gonna go through James chapter three, four, and five. And let me just tell you, sometimes he saves the best for last. So we're gonna go through a lot more. Stay tuned, but let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to evaluate our hearts and the internal condition for which we are right now. And whatever needs to be changed, let it be changed. Just ask the Holy Spirit to change you. Ask the Holy Spirit to evaluate you. And trust me, He will. But more importantly, He will change us. And that's what we're asking for. So let's do that together. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you today for your love. We thank you for your mercy. And God, we thank you for your word. I appreciate James's words today. We know they're inspired of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would evaluate our hearts, evaluate my heart, God. I pray that I would not show the sin of favoritism, the sin of pride, and also some type of apathy and avoidance of having this supposed faith without real works. I pray that, Lord, we would be challenged and changed as a result of studying this together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would pinpoint those areas of our life that need to grow particularly as we think about what we profess with our mouth and do not follow through with in our life. Help us with this, we pray. We know that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, God bless you. Thank you for joining Bible Foundations, and I look forward to studying James chapter 3 with you in just a few weeks. God bless you.